So Veterans Day is Thursday, and I'm wondering if we have any men or women here, men and women, who served in our armed forces. Would you stand so we can just show our appreciation? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for serving. So if you're in school, how many of you dread pop quizzes? Yeah, and if you were in school, I think for most of us, we've dreaded those. Well, this week I learned that this is an actual phobia for some people. It's called testophobia. And I want to begin with a pop quiz to see how well we understand doctrine. It just has four questions. Question number one, the Holy Spirit is A, an impersonal force, B, the soul of Jesus, C, the third member of the Trinity, or D, a divine essence? The answer is C, exactly. Number two, baptism is A, essential for salvation, B, a mark of maturity, C, a step of obedience, or D, optional for the believer. The correct answer is C. You guys are well taught. Number three, demons... A, not real, B, harmless, C, caricatures of evil, or D, fallen angels. Right on. Number four, repentance is reserved for non-Christians. Repentance is turning from sin, B, C, saying you're sorry, D, it's only needed for the big sins. The answer is B. Well, the word doctrine scares some people. Other people start snoozing. (laughs) Uh, Some of you might think when you think doctrine, you think of disagreements, maybe some battles you've had over doctrine. But my guess is most of us are delighted because it helps us understand God and his word better. Our English word doctrine is derived from the Latin word doctrina, which means that which is taught. I like the definition that Tim Challies gives. Doctrine is the way the central themes of God's revelation in Scripture are summarized and taught. To say it more simply, doctrine is a body of belief drawn from the Bible. Doctrine can be divided into various categories like The doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of end times. In 1 Timothy 4, 6, Paul gives Timothy props for the good doctrine that you have followed. Same book, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, he cautions against doctrinal error and he elevates the importance of accurate doctrine. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, listen to what he says, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. The Bible deals a lot with false doctrine because false doctrine is dangerous. It's detrimental to our faith. And there's phrases used in the Bible, like Jeremiah 10, verse 8, calls it worthless doctrine. This phrase, every wind of doctrine, 
Ephesians 4.14, doctrines of men, Colossians 2.22, doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1, and Hebrews 13.9 refers to strange doctrines. Friends, listen, lean in. Here's what we're seeing in the church today. In the evangelical church, we are seeing more and more Christians dissing doctrine deconstructing their faith, saying, well, I used to believe that, but now I believe this kind of smorgasbord of of beliefs, things I want, things I throw out, the things I don't. On top of that, we are seeing even Christian leaders openly embracing apostasy. Doctrine matters because what we believe affects how we behave. Titus 1.1 equates knowing with growing. The knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Same book, Titus 2 verse 10 frames it this way. In everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So we're to demonstrate our doctrine by allowing it to dress up our lives. We could say it like this. Right beliefs should, must lead to righteous behavior. We see this in many of Paul's letters. Let me just pick two, so consider the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3, rich doctrinal truth about our position in Christ. You get to chapter 4, now we start dealing with how do we apply this to our lives. He starts with position in Christ, ends the book with practice. Well, how about the book of Romans? The book of Romans, chapters 1 through 8, deal with doctrine. You get to chapters 9 through 11, deals with God's heart for Israel and God's future plans for Israel. And then at the end of chapter 11, this beautiful doxology, doctrine to doxology, chapter 12 through chapter 16, calls us to demonstrate our discipleship. Well, today we come to Acts chapter 19. We're continuing in our series called On Mission. And when I was studying this passage this week and praying for an outline, the more I read it, I began seeing different doctrines that are addressed. And I wrote down 10 different doctrines. Now, some of these are fairly well developed. Others appear in embryonic form. Now, the book of Acts is transitional in nature. It comes between the four Gospels and the letters, the epistles, which deal with doctrine. So we would expect in the book of Acts that some of the doctrines are incomplete. God's revelation is progressive, meaning he gave more of his inspired word after the book of Acts. Now, before we begin, I want to just say that we normally take this first weekend in November and focus on the plight of the persecuted church, and we spend time praying 
for our suffering brothers and sisters around the world. We are still going to do that, but we're going to move it to the next weekend. Here's why. Because the next passage in Acts chapter 19 deals with persecution. But I do want to lead us in prayer right now. We've been praying every week, and I hope you've been praying every day for the missionaries in Haiti that, as far as I know, are still held hostage. Would you join me as we pray? God, we're sitting here in comfortable chairs, and Lord, you uh, prompt us to remember our brothers and sisters as if we were in prison with them. And Lord, of these 17 missionaries held hostage in Haiti, Lord, some of them are children. And Lord, the plea of those missionaries has been steady. They're praying for the salvation of those who are holding them captive. So we join with them in that prayer that you would save them, that you would move in their hearts. Lord, we also pray for their release. We pray that you would use this as you always do, this bad situation for good, for your glory, for the propagation of your gospel in Haiti and around the globe. And Lord, we thank you for all the churches, thousands who this weekend and others next weekend focusing on the plight of the persecuted. Lord, would you sensitize us and mobilize us uh, to that uh, as we pray and as we remember. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First doctrine I see in Acts chapter 19, the doctrine of missions. A turn to verse 1. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. I also put it up on the screen. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. If you remember from last week, if you were here, Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, hey, I'll come back. Remember, they didn't want him to leave. He said, I'll come back if the Lord wills. Well, it's about a year has passed. He's now back in the city of Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey. So just think about where Paul has been up to this point. Let's just pick the last three stopping places. First, he ministered to the intellectual center of Athens, and then he ministered to the immoral, highly sexualized area of Corinth, And now he's in Ephesus, filled with evil and decadence. Why is he doing all that? Well, Matthew 28 commands us to take the gospel to the whole world. Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, that he and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Acts 1, verse 8, after the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses, and you're going to start in Jerusalem, Judea. Then you're going to go to Samaria, which includes our enemies, and then to the ends of the earth. That's really an outline of the book of Acts. Paul now is in Ephesus. That's home to the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the principal center for magic, was considered to be the citadel of Satan. Why is Paul there? He's there 
Because if people don't hear about Jesus, if people don't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are lost. These people are in bondage to their sins, and he's there to bring the life-changing message of the gospel. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, A newly ordained minister named William Carey stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. While he's talking about the importance of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, an older minister stood up. And this is what he said. Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. So there, Well, in response, Carey wrote a paper, I love the title of it, an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. He argued for the Great Commission, applying it to all Christians, and he castigated fellow believers of his day for ignoring it. But he didn't stop there. In 1792, he organized a missionary society, and at its inaugural meeting, he stood up and preached a sermon containing this urgent call. Perhaps you've heard this phrase. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. One year later, he was on a ship headed to India. Second doctrine we see is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. While he's in Ephesus, Paul found some disciples. No, not the 12 disciples, although there were about 12 of these. These were disciples of John the Baptist, and their doctrine of the Holy Spirit was deficient. So Paul asked them a question. Notice verse 2, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, "Uh, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, Matthew 3.11 tells us John predicted the coming of the Holy Spirit, but somehow these guys missed it. Drop down to verses 6 and 7. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 10 men in all. Now, we know from Romans chapter 8, verse 9, the Holy Spirit comes on all who are born again, immediately at conversion. We read there, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In Acts 10.44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, speaking in tongues and prophesying are not the normative signs of receiving the Holy Spirit. Here's God's pattern. God's pattern is for sinners to hear the word of God, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to immediately receive the Holy Spirit, and then to be baptized. Now, the speaking of foreign languages was actually helpful in the city of Ephesus because it was a multilingual city. That's much like what happened in Acts chapter 2. This would serve as a sign of the Holy Spirit's coming. 1 Corinthians 14.22 adds that tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. But church, let's just admit something. We don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. Most of us don't even consider the Holy Spirit. 
One of the best books I've read on this is by Francis Chan, and his title says it all, The Forgotten God Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. He writes this, while no evangelical would deny his existence, there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say they've experienced his presence or action in their lives over this past year, and many of them do not believe they can. Friends, right belief should lead to righteous behavior. Let's consider the third doctrine, the doctrine of baptism. When Paul realizes they have some wrong beliefs about baptism, he does some teaching. Meet me in verse 3, and he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, "Uh, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So John's baptism was a baptism of repentance that looked forward to the coming of Christ, while Christian baptism looks back to the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament referring to anyone being rebaptized. Well, here's how I see it. This was actually their first baptism. In a similar way, some of you were baptized as a baby, like I was. And after being born again, you were biblically baptized. So biblically speaking, your first baptism didn't count, so you weren't really rebaptized. You were baptized for the first time as a believer. So here's what we believe. We believe the Bible teaches baptism is a step of obedience for born-again believers whereby they publicly identify themselves with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ vividly portrayed through the waters of immersion. And some of you have been born again, but you've not yet been baptized. Our next service is the end of November. Let's look next at the doctrine of salvation. We see this in verse 8. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. Paul's practice was to speak in synagogues. He went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. The word boldly means he kept at it without any constraint. Nothing held him back. He reasoned with their minds and he appealed to their wills striving, encouraging them to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ as Messiah. I like what Charles Spurgeon once said, it's the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. The cure is the gospel, he writes. You know it and I know it, so let's do something about it. Paul was passionate about his fellow Jews being saved. Get this. Paul was willing to go to hell if it meant that they would go to heaven. Whoa. Paul's raised Jewish. He sees all these Jewish people and he's like, they need to recognize Jesus is the Messiah. Well, this is how he puts it. Romans 9, 2 and 3. I have great sorrow 
I have unceasing anguish in my heart. He's just tore up. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In Romans 10, verse 1, he summarized his deep longing. He said, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do you look at lost people like that? Do I? John Knox was one of the leaders of the Scottish Reformation. He picked up on Paul's passion when he made this urgent plea. Give me Scotland! Or I die. Oh, that you and I would say something like, Give me my family for Christ, or I die. God, give me my neighbors for Christ, or I die. Give me my classmates, give me my co workers for Christ, or I die. God, give me the quad cities for Christ or I die. Friends, right beliefs should lead to righteous behavior. Let's look at the next doctrine, the doctrine of sanctification. Number five, sanctification is the process where we are set apart from sin so that we can serve the Savior without hindrance. Here's the idea. We become more holy in how we live. Here at Edgewood, we use the word grow, gather with God's people, grow, give, and then go with the gospel. We use the word grow because we're reminded that you and I must take responsibility for growing, becoming more like Jesus. By the way, we're about ready to launch some new electives for our growth groups. There's a table out there. There's an elective on dealing with anxiety Another elective on Jesus as king, and what does that mean? And then another elective for men called win. Check out verses 9 and 10. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, note what he did. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for how long? Two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So here's what's happening. Whenever God's word is proclaimed, even right now, some of you are shutting down. You're dealing with a heart that might not believe it. Maybe you're hard. Maybe you're battling uh, with the Lord in that. And that can lead to becoming stubborn in your belief. That's a big deal in the Bible. Psalm 95, 8 says, do not harden your hearts. And I wonder if Paul is following the admonition of Jesus in Matthew 7, 6. He says, do not throw your pearls before pigs. And so Paul doesn't waste a lot of time on those who have hard hearts. What he does do is he invests in those who want to grow. He focused on those who were faithful. What's he do? He rents out a community center. He reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. One Greek manuscript indicates he discipled other believers from 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon 
every day. Now, if that's true, he taught six hours every day for two years. That adds up to between 15,000 to 18,000 hours of discipleship and leadership training, which shows how much doctrine mattered to Paul. And as a result of this intentional equipping, observe all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Ephesus became the evangelism sending area for the entire region of Asia. During this time, according to Colossians 4.13, churches were planted in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Friends, wouldn't it be great if the entire Quad City area heard about the gospel from you and me as we live on mission for the glory of God? Makes me think of John Wesley's statement. He said this, the world is my parish. And I can remember reading that quote in its larger context several years ago when we lived in central Illinois. And I said, Lord, I want to view the world that way as well. Lord, as long as you allow me to be one of the pastors in a local church, I want to give myself to that church, but I don't want to just focus on the church. Lord, help me to see the congregation, the parish, if you will, as the world, as the entire community. Number six, the doctrine of miracles. Are you aware our God is a God of miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Psalm 77, 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. So what's a miracle? A miracle is an act of God beyond human understanding, which displays God's power. It inspires wonder in humans, and it acts as a sign that God is at work in the world. So let's look now at verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Verse 12, you're going to think, this is weird. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Well, let me just point out, the word extraordinary here means extraordinary. It means special, unusual. Miracles don't happen all the time, but they do happen. And perhaps this happened because there was so much magic in Ephesus that these miracles were evidence of God demonstrating power over satanic forces. Now, these handkerchiefs weren't like the kind, whatever happened to us wearing suits, right? Where the guys wear a hanky right here that matches the tie. You got, thank you for holding strong with the suit there. Um, It's not that kind of hanky or the kind of hanky you put in your pocket. No, this was more like a sweatband that Paul would wear as he was making tents. The apron, don't think of an apron in a kitchen, think of kind of a half apron that he wore when he was working. Listen, there have always been spiritual charlatans, but don't miss this truth. God still does miracles today. And if you doubt miracles, I got to tell you, you're on very shaky ground because the Bible is filled with them. Consider, God created the world out of nothing. 
We believe in the miracle of the virgin birth, the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of the resurrection, and the miracle, consider this, the miracle of having your sins forgiven when you don't deserve it. The miracle of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. The miracle of the new birth. In addition, Jesus himself performed some 37 miracles recorded in the gospels. Friends, right beliefs should lead us to righteous behavior. Let's look at number seven, the doctrine of demonology. Friends, as our culture slides further and further into decadent depravity, you have observed, haven't you, that there's been an increased interest, like a resurgence of interest in the occult today. Consider verses 13 and 16. We see an example here of how Ephesus was filled with demonic activity Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Notice this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The Jewish exorcists were misusing the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's the backstory: Common belief, if you use someone's name and he's a, he or she's a powerful person, you now have power because you've used that name. Incidentally, historians don't believe that there was a high priest named Sceva, so these seven brothers likely just made it all up to give them some credibility. Would you observe the evil spirit knew who Jesus was? The word for know means the spirit knew him personally. The spirit recognized the apostle Paul because he was in Christ, but he didn't recognize these seven guys. In fact, the phrase, but who are you, is emphatic. It was spoken with disdain. Jesus and Paul, well, they had authority. These seven had no power over the evil spirit. As a result, the demonized man sprang upon them like a panther knocking them to the ground. And while trying to tap out, the demon ripped off their clothes, tore into their bodies, causing severe wounds. Mark 5, 3 and 4 gives a description of a demonized man who lived in a cemetery. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And instead of casting out demons, these men were catapulted out of the house, humiliated, horrified. Brothers and sisters, you and I are in a spiritual battle Demons are real, and they must be respected. You're like, I don't want to be in the battle. You're in it. Pastor Ray, president of Keep Believing Ministries, it's one of our Go Team partners, has written an excellent brand new booklet, and it's called The Armor of God. 
It's one of the most helpful treatments I've read on the topic of spiritual warfare. We have copies out at the Welcome Center. They're free, and they're not going to last. We've given them out all services, and they've all gone. We saved some for this service. When you get out there and they're gone, you can go on keepbelieving.com and download a free PDF. I also have ordered a bunch more of these. These are available for free. They're so helpful. I also put some other titles out there. Here's what Ray writes. The best trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he doesn't exist. If people don't believe you exist, they won't try to stop you. That's one cause of the church's weakness today. We fail to take the devil seriously. We're ignorant of his strategy, his power, his vast army, and his infernal plans. We live on a rebel planet controlled by the devil himself. As followers of Jesus Christ, we've been thrown into a spiritual conflict that rages all around us. In that conflict, every believer is on the front lines. A couple more sentences. When we face these temptations, we may be sure Satan has us in his crosshairs. That's exactly the moment when we need to put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6.13. That command, put on, is a military term. It's the last step you take before going into battle. It's like cleaning your rifle, checking your ammo, putting on your flak jacket, and grabbing your helmet. Take up your armor, Christian, because all hell will soon break loose against you. Ray then walks through how to put on each piece of the armor of God from Ephesians 6. Friends, settle this. Right beliefs should, must lead to righteous behavior. Number eight, notice the doctrine of the supremacy of Christ. I'm in verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Word spread. Word spread quickly, leading people to fear evil and revere Jesus. Do you know one of the reasons the early church grew so quickly is because they lived in the fear and awe of God. Let me give you just two examples. Acts 2, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Acts 9.31, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word extol means to enlarge, to magnify, to make great. So instead of belittling the name of Jesus, you and I are called to magnify his name. Let's join the psalmist who said these words, Psalm 34, verse 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. That's the power of corporate worship. I think of Mary, who's reflecting on the miracle of her pregnancy and what all that means. She knows she's a virgin. She's pregnant. So what does she do? Luke 1, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, which leads to number nine, the doctrine of confession. 
Christians must be quick to confess to God and to others. Confession of sin is the admission of what we did and the agreement with God that our actions or words were wrong. This is spelled out in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. You know, once Jesus is exalted, we can't help but confess our sins. It's like Isaiah. He sees the holiness of God. And what's what's he do? He's like, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. I'm falling apart in the midst, in the presence of your holiness. The tense of the word came indicates believers kept coming. They kept confessing. They kept divulging. Let me ask you a question. It could be unsettling. Are you tired of hiding your unholiness? Are you getting sick of trying to hide your sins? That secret sin takes a lot of effort to keep secret. Are you tired of that? Are you ready today to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and confess that sin? I think of David. He commits adultery with Bathsheba and then he offs her husband. He thinks he got away with it all until conviction settles in. And he writes that his bones, he felt like his bones were like like dissolving within him. And he finally gets to this point. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Friend, is there anything you've been reluctant to confess to God? He knows about it anyway. Anything you've been reluctant to confess to your spouse? To your parents? To your children? To your boss? To a friend? James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, comma, that you may be what? Healed. That you may be healed. Number 10, the doctrine of repentance. So these believers not only confess their sins, they cut themselves off from those sins through specific and very severe acts of repentance. We see that in verse 19. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. They burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What were those books? Those books contained spells, incantations. To burn something has a sense of finality to it. Like in Deuteronomy 7.25, the Israelites are told to burn false images in the fire. Plus, would you know, these, this was burned in the sight of all. This was done at great personal cost. Many commentators estimate the value of these books at $10,000. 
Others suggest it was the equivalent, notice 50,000 pieces of silver. If a piece of silver represented a day's wage, that's 50,000 days wages. One biblical scholar wondered if it was actually in our dollars, closer to like $4 million. Friends, let me say this. There might be a cost to eradicating idols in your life. But there'll be a bigger cost if you don't. You're going to pay the price one way or another. So are you going to pay the price to eradicate an idol? To confess and repent from a sin? I've mentioned this before and maybe I've mentioned it too often because when you hear me say it again, you'll be like, yeah, you just said that. But here's why I say it every time because it was so vivid in my mind. So I got saved at 19, University of Wisconsin at Madison. I was into a whole bunch of stuff. One of the things was I listened to acid rock. Remember when there were albums? They're making a comeback, right? So I was convicted one day to break some of my albums. I didn't break all of them, but I broke ACDC, Black Sabbath. Why? Because they had an evil influence in my life. Friend, is there anything you need to demolish? Anything you're playing around with? How about a wrong relationship? Are you committing adultery? Are you dating somebody who's not a Christ follower? Are you involved in premarital sex? Break it off. Do you have a Ouija board? Are you kind of fascinated by the occult? Get rid of it. Maybe you need to cancel cable or that streaming service that's making you stumble. Maybe you need to stop watching horror movies. You're like, oh, I just like being scared. You're watching evil. Do you need to put a blocker on your phone, on your tablet or your computer? Do you need to flush some pills? You need to throw away some alcohol, change your number, disengage from gaming, cut up some credit cards, or sell some possessions. I don't know what that looks like for you, but listen, repentance refers to changing our beliefs, which leads to changes in our behavior. Here's the idea. You're going this direction, and you're like, that's it, that's enough. You change your mind about how you've been living, and you turn, and you go in a different direction. This is fleshed out in Acts 26, 20, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now, all of that brings us to this beautiful verse. Look at verse 20. This is the result. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That phrase continued to increase means it kept growing and continued. To prevail mightily is to be robust and have great force. Oh, may the Lord continue to grow and be robust with great force here at Edgewood. May the word of the Lord continue to grow. I wonder what God would do here if we would cultivate a spirit of confession 
you and I would be quick to repent. Not to excuse, blame, or justify, but quick to repent. I wonder if you'd join me in a prayer I've been praying. Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you? This is now the second time Pastor Kyle has invited a group called the Traveling Team to Edgewood. A number of our students heard them speak this morning down in the lower level. They'll be back tonight speaking to Mainspring. Their heart is to ignite a passion for missions in youth and young adults. And their organization, get this, has spoken to nearly half a million college students. They primarily focus their efforts on secular university campuses. It's a privilege for us to have them here today. They partner with college ministries like Crew, the Navigators, and Inner Varsity. So Will, Emily, and Dave are here. Dave, why don't you come on up? And uh, when Kyle told me that they were coming, I thought, wow, since we're learning about why doctrine matters, I thought it would be helpful, uh, David, if you'd just answer one question for us. And it's a pretty big question. So it, it goes like this. What have you come across in college students related to worldview, their doctrine, their beliefs, and then how have you worked to address that when you evangelize and disciple? It's a great. It's a great question. Um, You're on. There yep. we go. We're on. Uh, it's a great question. Um, when when we talk with college students, uh, one of the things we're noticing, especially about the younger generation, is they are not all of them, but for the most part, many of them are pretty biblically illiterate. Hmm. They. Um, they You're talking know, about Christians. Even. Christians. Yeah. They 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 grew up in church, but when they get to college, a lot of them don't have a great understanding of who God is, what the gospel is, or, and if they, if they don't have that, they're not going to know how to like defend their faith. So mm-hmm. when they go to, when they go to a college and they don't know much about uh, uh, scripture and how to think biblically about the world, um, they're going to be listening to what the, the world is telling them, what the media is telling them, what mm. their unbelieving friends or their professors are telling them. So um, we've seen that kind of creep in to, to college students who don't have a, a biblical literacy of, hmm. of important doctrines, kind of like what you're talking about today. So, so one pretty common, you've probably heard this one, is all paths lead to God. Um, all paths lead to God, all paths lead to heaven. And um, we know that that's not true, right? Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. So kind of like what you're talking about, if if we, in our, in our younger generation, if we're not thinking rightly about the gospel, if we don't believe that it's the power of God for salvation, what need is there for me to share it with other people hmm. if there's multiple paths? So, this, so then Christians just go quiet. They go quiet, yeah. And, and especially in our context, we're challenging Christians on college campuses to be a witness to their, their friends on campus that are non-believers, to internationals on their campus, and we're challenging them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the unreached, to people in, in places like the Middle East and North Africa and, and Asia, where a lot of them have never heard the gospel. So mm-hmm. um, we can't challenge students to do that if they don't believe that there's one way of salvation, and that's through faith in Christ. So um, that's something that we've run into 
uh, where, where some college students, they, they need to be uh, saturating their minds in the word when they grow up in the church. And like, we all have a part to play in that. If, sure. if we're not disciples ourselves, how are we going to equip them to be disciples and make disciples? So mm. um, I, I think it's really important, like what y'all are talking about. It's like doctrine is so important because we won't act in the ways that God wants us to if we don't believe rightly about the things that God wants us to. So, Right on. Yeah. Man, thank you for yeah. sharing your heart, yeah. Dave. And the, doesn't he have a lot of depth? I love what you're doing and your ministry's doing on college campuses. Let's give him a hand. Thanks, Dave. I'm excited that our junior high, high school students heard that today. They had a whole hour of that, and tonight at Main Spring as well. They have a table set up right out those doors with a free world prayer map and other resources. So the Ephesian church, when you read through the book of Ephesians, became a doctrinally solid church, uh, but they let one extremely important matter Slip. Anyone know what that was? When I say it, you'll know. They lost their first love. You say, well, how do you know that? Because Jesus came to the church at Ephesus. Book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus, how would you like to hear these words? You see Jesus, and he says this, I have this against you. What? You've abandoned the love you had at first. So it's possible to be doctrinally solid and forget to love God and love others. Ah, but he gave him a remedy, and this remedy is for us today. Next verse, Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, repent, and do the works you did at first. I wrote it down this way. Remember. Consider how far you've fallen, repent, turn around quickly, and repeat. Go back and do what you did before. By the way, all three of those are listed in the imperative tense, meaning that they're commands. Friend, one day, there will be a final exam. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, his perfect score has been applied to your report card. But if you're not saved, you'll flag the class You'll fail, you'll get an F, and you'll spend eternity in a place called hell. (laughs) But you don't have to. You don't have to go there. If you repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Once a month, we celebrate communion because we're a people who forget. We want to remember Communion's a time for us to recalibrate and to bring everything we've heard today to this point because we want to make sure our doctrine is leading us to discipleship, that right beliefs lead to right behavior, and that our love for Jesus Christ drives everything we do. The Bible calls us to examine ourselves before taking communion, not to be flippant. I'm going to invite you to do that right now and spend some time remembering, repenting, and repeating. And if you're prompted during this to make something right with someone, then maybe you need to take a pass on communion today as an incentive for you to go and make that relationship right. Spend some time right now preparing yourself.
I'm going to invite you to stand. And now to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you before his holy presence with great joy, listen to this next part, and without fault, to him be glory, honor, both now and forever. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, have a great rest of the weekend.